0: Two weeks ago, I went out for a friend's birthday party. And we went out on Capitol Hill to a little place called Eight Ounce Burger. You guys heard of this? Very good food. I sat at a long table with some friends, uh, none of which were a part of this church, most of which weren't a part of any church. Uh, and after that, guess where we went? That's right, Rock Box. If you don't know what Rock Box is, it's a little karaoke joint up on Capitol Hill. Uh, and I sang, sang my little heart out. I just uh, just <laughs> sang at the top of my lungs. In fact, I was surprised that I could preach on Sunday because I had lost my voice. Uh, because when you're rocking out to Michael Jackson's Man in the Mirror, <laughs> you have to give it your all, Okay. So, did that, and you know what? After the party, it's the after party, so I went down with uh, uh, one of these friends down to the Tractor Tavern, down in beautiful Ballard, and uh, it was 90s night, and I had some of my greatest moments in the 90s. That's really when I peaked, and, you know, we had a good time. And here's the deal. I thought about this as I was... Frequenting these establishments uh, with a whole variety of types of people. As a pastor, I thought to myself, and I wondered, I, I wonder if there's anybody here who knows that I'm a pastor, and I, I wonder what they're thinking right now. What, what, what are they thinkings going on? Because I was having a good time. I was smiling and singing, sometimes dancing. I wonder what they're thinking about old Pastor Dave here. So I was a little bit worried, but I've also read this passage that we'll read today. And I realized, well, they're probably just thinking what everybody thought about this Jesus character. Have you ever had that feeling or have you ever had that experience when you run into somebody out of context and they say to you, oh, I wasn't expecting to see you here. And, and, and you say, or you think in your head, I, well, why is that? And they lie to you. But the real answer is that they had already decided in their own minds who you were, what you were like, what you were about, what kind of people you ran with. They'd sort of written your story for you. you had that experience? Or have you done that to somebody? Let me ask you another question Have you ever been surprised by a movie or a book or a play? Here's what's happening. This is why you're surprised, because the plot takes a turn in a direction that you weren't expecting. And so you're surprised. But why were you expecting anything at all? You'd never seen that movie. You'd never read that book. You'd never experienced that play. Well, the reason that you're surprised, the reason is because you are almost incapable of letting a story tell itself because you're a human being. And as human beings, we love to finish the story because we like to be in control. We love to anticipate. We love to typecast. We love to decide before the moment of, the de- of decision is necessary. I had this terrible habit, and I probably still have it, that I like to go to movies, and I like to predict within the first five to 10 minutes the big plot twist. So if you were sitting with me, and this is a long time ago, it might have even have been in the 90s, uh, the movie The Sixth Sense. Spoiler alert, close your ears if you've never seen it. There's a plot twist. I won't tell you what it is. But about five minutes into the movie, I turned to the person sitting next to me, I whispered in the ear, I said, guess what? He is. <laughs> Turns out I was right. Well, I thought, felt pretty good about myself, but you know what I did? I ruined the movie <laughs> for the person sitting next to me. Okay. So it's a bad habit, but I loved it because it's the power of prediction. I love to feel that power. Like I know what's going to happen before it happens. Now this is pretty similar with what we do to Jesus. Jesus. Why why is it that we can't let him tell his own story? Why do we always, almost always, try to finish his story for him? Why can't we just allow him to reveal it to us in his timing, in his way? We all struggle with that. And in our passage today, a lot like last week, we see Jesus getting a little perturbed by those who pre-decide. Who he is and what he's all about and what he's going to do and why he's doing it. So let me ask you this question. Have you prejudged Jesus? Have you decided already who he is, what he's about? And are you willing to take a step back and just allow him to tell you who he is himself? To reveal it in his own timing, in his own way, through both his words and his deeds. Are you willing to do that? Whether you've been a Christian for a long time or not, are you willing to come to the Gospel of Mark and allow him to tell you? So before we read this story today, let's locate ourselves in the bigger story that we've been participating in over the last few weeks. First, we see this Jesus of Nazareth. Just a carpenter's son. He comes onto the scene And he is baptized by this John the Baptist. And this baptism is rather extraordinary. It's unusual. It's one of a kind. And then he begins a preaching ministry. And he goes into towns and villages all throughout this northern region of Israel. And he's preaching uh, one message. And the message goes something like this The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is near so repent and believe the good news that i bring to you and he does this all over and in the midst of this teaching and this proclamation ministry he also begins to prove that he has a unique authority and a unique power and he does this through his teaching and through his healing and through his exorcism And as we saw last week, he does this through the forgiving of sins, something that only God is supposed to be able to do. And as a result of this, a large following begins to happen. And there's this crowd that begins to follow Jesus. And when they hear that he's in town, they go because they're wanting to see the show. They're wanting to see this power and authority on full display. So there's these crowds that swell and follow him. But He always asks people to take a step out of the crowd to become vulnerable, to become exposed in order that they might actually experience for themselves His powerful grace in their life. Last week we saw an example of this. We saw a paralytic man who does just that, who steps out and over above the crowd. And he was brought to Jesus by his friends who had extraordinary faith and he comes before the feet of Jesus, and he experiences this healing and forgiveness, and it brings great glory to God. And in this story, we really have an example where it seems to be this paralytic man and his friends taking the initiative, right? They're taking the initiative. Well, today we're going to see a similar scene, but there's going to be an important nuance that I I want you to kind of listen for as we read this story as we continue to flesh out our understanding of how God truly works through the person of Jesus, okay? So that's what we're going to do. So, Mark chapter 2, let's read our text for today. Starting in verse 13. The Gospel according to Mark says this. Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. And he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners but when Jesus heard it he said to them those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick i came not to the righteous i came to call or to not not to call the righteous but sinners this is the word of the lord now When I was a younger man, I used to think all the time uh, that it was myself who was taking the initiative. Uh, I used to think I was the one getting things done. And uh, it was only when I became old, as I am now, that I began to realize uh, that I was wrong that in fact many times I wasn't actually taking the initiative even though maybe I was seemingly taking the first step or maybe taking the most steps so so for instance in relationships with mentors or or older men in my life it felt like I was always taking the initiative but now I look back and I realize they were really drawing me in and that was them taking the initiative Now, um, is Hillary in the room? Skinner? No. Hey. (laughs) Um, How are you? Good to see you. (laughs) Okay, I won't bring this up. Let me bring up another illustration. (laughs) It was not going to be a negative illustration. I'll explain it to you later. I'll explain it to you later. Great example of someone who takes initiative. Okay. Let me bring up another example. (laughs) Is Hillary Murphy in the room tonight? That's what I meant to say. No, she's not here. But she's the best boxer that we have in our congregation. So watch out for her. Just finished her first competitive fight. And, and, and here is, if you understand boxing, you understand this dynamic of initiative. You can watch a fight, and it could look like there's one boxer who's really the aggressor, the one that's always stepping in to take the initiative, while the other boxer looks like they're always retreating. But now, if you really understand boxing, what you realize is that that boxer is just a defensive boxer, which is that even though they're taking a step back, they are, in fact, initiating the combat. And oftentimes, defensive boxers are quite successful because they have learned the art of initiating without aggressing. And in my own faith, in my own life, I experienced this dynamic. I experienced it in relationships, but I also experienced it in my own faith. I used to think that it was me who had done the initiating with God, that it was really me who had sought after God. And in a sense, I had taken important, necessary steps. But as I got older and I started to look back, what I began to to realize was that God had actually initiated with me. And that he had maybe done it years and years before I was even born. As he initiated with my parents. And so as I began to see things more properly, what I began to see is even though it seemed like I was taking steps towards God, it was really him that was wooing me in, by his spirit, to the consideration of him. And in today's story, what we're going to see is something almost opposite to what happens with the paralytic. We're going to see a story, an example, where Jesus himself comes alongside this Levi, this tax collector, and he initiates the conversation. And then he initiates with Levi's rough and tumble friends, these tax collectors and sinners that are mentioned over and over again. And when we compare that to last week, it might seem like, well, in this situation, God initiated the process of calling Levi, and in the last story, it was the people that initiated. But when we begin to zoom out, and we see this all the time in in Scripture, when we begin to zoom out and see things as they always are, we actually begin to realize that it's always Jesus that initiates. That it's always God that takes the first step, even if the first step is wooing you in. And that's important. It's important to understand that even though these scenes differ, that the principle remains the same. Jesus always initiates and we respond. Because who sent Jesus? Jesus. Well, the paralytic didn't send Jesus, God sent Jesus. How did the paralytic hear about Jesus? Who was it that was teaching in the cities? So in every story, what we're gonna see is that in some way or another, it's actually God who has initiated the process of someone coming to faith. So you might be sitting there, and your story might be different than mine. Your story might seem like you had to take more initiative, or it might seem like you took less initiative. But no matter how much it seems, the story's always the same. God initiates, and then we respond. This is a reality that's true for all of us. And why is it important? Well, it's important because we don't get credit. I'm not standing here because I'm somehow smarter than anyone else. Or I didn't try harder than someone else. Or I didn't respond better than someone else. I'm here because God initiated with me that Jesus came and offered to me His salvation. And He gets all the credit and He gets all the glory. And that is true of each and every person's story. No matter if you're more like the paralytic or you're more like Levi. And Jesus just walked by your booth and told you to follow him. Okay? that's so important to understand as we continue to walk through the gospel according to Mark. As you continue to wrestle with whether or not you're acting or initiating properly. Your job is to respond because God has already initiated. In fact, if you're sitting here today, it's because God has initiated with you. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't not participate. It just means that you don't get credit. God gets the credit, okay? Now, here's the second thing that I want you to notice in the text. And we talked about this a little bit last week. I want you to notice the uniqueness of this crowd mentality. We talked about it last week, how... In each of these stories, there's these people who remain in the crowd, and they sort of operate from within the safety of the crowd. And we have that again this week. Now, answer this question for me: If you wanted to make uh, to to come up with the best answer to a question, what do you do? You go to the what? Internet. (laughs) That's right. Let me write that one down. Uh, You go to the source that's always the which sometimes is the internet and wikipedia you know it's it's 100% right 50% of the time so you go straight to the source that's the best way to get the best answer to a question that you have now if you want the answer that you want to hear what should you do well you want to create your own source You want to write your own Wikipedia article and then reference it. And often when you're searching for your own answer or you want to hear something that's not the best answer but more of an answer that you want uh, and you're creating your own source, one of the ways you can do this uh, is by finding someone who is socially connected to the answer that you want but is just as in the dark about the real truth of the matter right so you think of yourself as a reporter i just want to find somebody who is associated socially with the person that i'm trying to find the answer about but that doesn't actually know because those people tend to kind of tell me what i want to hear they can i can lead them towards the answer that i want now i was trying to think of an example that that i could share with you guys about how this works and For some reason, all I could think about was buying a wedding ring. Now, some of you have recently done this. Some of you um, are in the process of buying an engagement ring. Uh, Some of you want to do this at some point in your life. So let me just give you some advice. When I'm buying a wedding ring, there's a couple things that I need to know. I need to know my wife, Allie. Well, she's my wife now because she liked the ring I got her. So I I needed to know her back then before she was my wife. I needed to know Ali, I needed to know something about rings, and I should probably also know something about trends, general fashion trends. Now some of you are like, well, I only want to get something that's not trendy, but for most of you, you want to get something that's at least, you know, not way out there. So here's some advice, here's some people not to ask, well, if, if your fiance or soon-to-be fiance has any brothers, don't ask them, don't ask them. They might know their sister, but they don't know anything about rings, and probably not trends. Now, you also don't want to ask any unfashionable friends of your potential spouse, okay? Now there's nothing wrong with friends, uh, but you want somebody who has some knowledge of buying a good ring, okay? And the other person you don't want to ask is a ring salesman because they know rings really, really well and they know the trends, but one, they don't know your potential wife and two, they're trying to get as much money out of you as humanly possible because they're probably paid on commission even if they lie to you and tell you they're not. Well, we don't have commissions. We call it sales goals. Okay. So here's who you want to ask. You want to find a stylish sister, and you want to talk to them, and you want to ask them, have they ever talked to Allie or your wife about what kind of ring to buy? Because you want to get as close to the source as possible without actually asking the source, because then you ruin the surprise. But if you ask them their opinion, that's okay too. This is how I did it, and I came up with a great ring. Take a look at this ring next time you get a chance. This is a great-looking ring that I got Allie. And I went to her stylish sister, Meredith, and I asked her her opinion, and I bought this great ring. And sure enough, she said yes. And uh, hey, there you go. (laughs) Simple as that, people. You want to get married? Follow those instructions, Okay. Because I'm trying to get back to the source, okay? But now look at who the scribes of the Pharisees ask about Jesus' actions. Verse 16, what's it say here? It says, So the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now here's what's interesting. He, they asked these disciples, and, you know, well, that seems like a good place to go. The problem with this is, The disciples don't know Jesus very well at this point. In fact, they're shown again and again in Mark's gospel to be sort of out of the loop with Jesus' true motivations, why he's truly come, what he's truly about. Yes, they're socially connected to him because they're seen following Jesus, but they're really, really disconnected at this point from Jesus' mission and motivations. In fact, later on we see Jesus calls one of them Satan, because they don't even know why he's come. So notice who they didn't ask. And theoretically, he's right there. They didn't ask Jesus. Well, why not? Because I don't think they really wanted the full story. And as Jesus tends to do, he sniffs it out. He understands this crowd mentality. And he overhears them asking his disciples something that they could have asked him And so you know what he does? He doesn't even give the disciples time to answer, and he goes and answers himself. Jesus gives them the full story from the source. So here's the next question I want you to ask of yourself. Do you want the full story? Do you want the best possible answer about who Jesus is And why he says and does what he says and does. Do you want the best answer? And if you do, at some point you need to stop. And you need to stop asking the less informed. And you need to go straight to the source himself. You need to actually ask Jesus if he is who he said he was. You say, well, I can't do that. He's not around. In fact, you can. It's something that we call prayer. And no matter what you think about Jesus in this moment, I believe that you can pray and ask Him yourself, who are you? And one of the ways that you can do this is what I'll call praying through the Gospels which is God has revealed who His Son Jesus is through Gospels like Mark. And you can read it for yourself and ask, who are you? And I believe if you do that honestly, without pretense, and you pray your way through the Gospels and ask Jesus, is this really who you are? I believe you'll start to develop the best possible answer that you can have. You can get the full story because you've gone straight to the source. Okay? That's so important to see here in this story. Jesus doesn't like it when people just talk behind his back about who he is. He wants you to ask him. Have you asked him? Okay. So what is the full story? Why was Jesus calling A tax collector, Levi, to follow Him. Why was He eating dinner with this group of sinners and tax collectors? Why was He doing that? Let's read the story again. Verse 13. So Jesus went out beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to Him, and He was teaching them. And as He passed by, He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and He said to him, Follow Me. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now first of all, why was this so shocking to these scribes of the Pharisees? Now let me explain to you this group. The Pharisees were a religious group. You could think of them almost like a denomination. They were like the Presbyterians or the Baptists or something like that. And the scribes of the Pharisees were sort of the professional Baptists or the professional Presbyterians because their job was to transmit the texts, to write things out, to record things. They were kind of like pastors. So this group would have been hyper religious, they would have been very, very concerned with following the laws of God. That's what the Pharisees were known for, being very, very conservative in their ability to follow the Old Testament law and the religious tradition of the day. And one of the things that would have been frowned upon in their circles would have been hanging out with tax collectors. And the reason why nobody liked tax collectors is kind of the reason why nobody likes tax collectors today. What do you actually give to society? It seems like all you do is take. And in fact, in this day, tax collectors, you could also call them toll collectors, because what Levi was probably doing was sitting on a county border, and any time traffic would come by him from one county to another, he would charge a toll on those goods or on those individuals passing through and he was working for the government. And the government at the time, well, it was kind of like the government of our day. Wasn't super popular. And people didn't like the fact that a Jewish man like Levi would be working for this ungodly government that ruled the land of the day. And so you can read stories about what the Jews thought about tax collectors or toll collectors. And it's pretty gnarly stuff. I mean, these people were hated to the point where you could compare them to somebody who helped out the Nazis in Germany. That's the level of disgust that the Jewish people had for tax collectors. And that's important to understand as you read this story, that these were some of the most hated people in all of the Jewish society. Now, today, maybe we think of this like Wall Street executives. And think about Wall Street executives from the lens, this is what the scribes of the Pharisees would have been like, from the lens of being a community organizer for the Occupy Wall Street movement. This would have been how much these two groups were at odds. Now picture this, Jesus walks into a Wall Street office tower, goes up to the top floor and sits down and has a meeting with a vice president of J.P. Morgan and he asks him to follow him and this VP follows Jesus and later that night you see Jesus and this VP and all of his Wall Street friends out to dinner. At a fancy Manhattan restaurant, chumming it up, $300 a plate. Imagine how that would make you feel. That's what's happening here in this story. There's no way that this Jesus could be the Messiah. How could he befriend these types of people? Now, it's important to understand here what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not looking at these scribes and saying, "Now listen, guys. If you really got to know these Wall Street execs, you'd realize they're they're pretty good guys. Now they do this job, but they're pretty good guys. If you got to know them, real family men." That's not what Jesus is saying. In fact, What Jesus is saying, He's saying, yeah, these guys are crooked. These guys are thieves. But you know what? I didn't come for the straight. I came to make the crooked straight. So that's why I hang out with these guys. It's important to hear that because I think so often we like to talk about People as if He just got to know them, and Jesus is saying the exact opposite. He's saying, "Yeah, if you got to know them, they're actually worse than you think." But you know what? They're the ones that I came for. Now look at verse 17 again. Jesus tells us why He came. He's saying, "Listen, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. You see, see, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, remember with me, if you are here for the last three weeks, how each of the last chunks of Scripture ended. First, we had uh, this story of a leper. And, And Jesus cleanses him of his leprosy, of his skin disease, which had kept him socially isolated. But the very first thing Jesus says is, He says, go to the temple, show them that you're a clean. And why does He do that? Clean from what? Clean from sin, Because leprosy had been associated with his sin, and so you go to the temple so that the priest can say, oh, you're clean from your sin. And then last week we had the paralytic, and Jesus tells him to stand up and walk home, and he heals him of his paralysis. Why does he do that? To prove to the crowds that what he also said about the paralytic is true, which is your sins. Are forgiven, And then here, Jesus says in this story, the uncleanness that we saw with the leper, that we saw with the broken paralytic, is the exact same thing that we see in these tax-collecting crooks. That they have this crookedness to their life, and that by forgiving their sin and asking them to follow Him, Jesus is redeeming them. So, so, if you're if you're if you're just an observant person, you have to realize this: that Jesus came to heal the sickness of sin first and foremost. I mean, otherwise, I'm just asking, what what Bible are we reading? And you can walk into churches all across this country who will never talk about sin. And on what Bible are you reading? Jesus, again and again, brings everything back to healing this sickness called sin. And then by proxy, putting everything else back together again. That was his singular mission, which is why he sat upon the cross and he called out, It is finished. Well, guess what wasn't finished? Physical healing. Social healing. There was much to come even after his death and resurrection and continues to happen. But you know what? It wasn't finished on that cross. But the one thing that he came to do was finished, which was his mission to provide the remedy for that age old pervasive plague which affects all humanity and all creation, which is sin itself. So Jesus says right here, as clear as day, I have come not for the righteous, but for sinners. And if you fail to grasp the priority and the precedent of that mission, then you will fail to understand who Jesus is. It will just sort of go over your head. And you won't understand what He wants to do for you. I think that's what, exactly what perplexed the religious folks of His day, the scribes of the Pharisees, and I think it's the same thing that perplexes religious folks of our day. When Jesus said in verse 17, I didn't come for the righteous, he was not talking to the Pharisees. He, w- he wasn't saying, well, you know, I didn't come for you righteous folks. They might have heard it that way. But what he was saying was that, hey, if there was somebody who happened to be actually righteous, if that were such a thing, well, then they'd have no use for me. Because I'm a doctor. And I'm a doctor that only treats the symptoms of unrighteousness by destroying the cause, which is sin. Now let me explain to you what I mean by unrighteousness. Unrighteousness is knowing a command of God and not acting it out in your life. So anyone that is righteous is he who takes the right action that God has prescribed for his life. Now, the Bible will tell us again and again, none are righteous. Not even one. Because we've all experienced in different ways, and at many times, the command of God on our life, and we've chosen to act differently. We call this sin, And it comes in many forms. And the symptom of this sin is this condition called unrighteousness. Now, if you cannot consistently identify and admit the unrighteousness and the cause of unrighteousness in your life, which is sin, then here's the problem you will not call the doctor. Somebody call a doctor. I'm not going to do it if I can't identify and admit that I've got a problem. Or, here's the other thing I might do. I'll call the wrong doctor. I think I've got a problem with this, so I call this kind of doctor. When in reality, I've got this problem, and I need to call that doctor. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, I had this happen to me. Some of you know this. I have a little problem called kidney stones, which is that my body loves calcium so much that it stores it up for a later date and then passes it through (laughs) on a journey to, well, not ecstasy, but the opposite of ecstasy. Sheer pain and torture, which has left me many a time curled up in the fetal position on floors across several states. So, I've got this problem, and uh, when I was in seminary, I knew I had this problem, uh, but I also thought that I was taking care of the problem myself. And so um, I would have these bouts where I I thought I was passing a kidney stone, and I would experience excruciating pain, uh, and I would, you know, sweat, and uh, sometimes I would be throwing up because the pain was so bad, but then the pain would stop. And so I thought, well, you know, I'm in seminary. I don't have a lot of money. I'll just save this copay. Because, you know, if you go to the emergency room, even if you have good insurance, which I had okay insurance, you still got to pay a little bit of money. So I came up with this system to make it through an episode. And each of these times I thought I was passing a stone. Well, it turns out I just had a very big stone that was slowly moving its way (laughs) down my ureter, which is quite painful. And it never actually was passing on its own. I figured this out, by the way, after the fact, because I had such a bad episode that I finally, well, if Allie were here, she'd tell you, I should have gone the first eight times that it happened. But I'm cheap. So I waited, and I finally went, and it turns out, you know, eight millimeter stone, which is a pretty large stone to pass through your ureter, and the only way to get it out is with a laser beam. (laughs) That's how you know it's bad, when you need a laser beam to fix the problem. The other thing about kidney stones that's interesting, I learned this the first time, I thought I'd pulled a muscle in my back. Turns out your kidneys are on the backside of your body. And so, imagine this, if I had gone to a chiropractor to fix my kidney stone problem. Well, he would have charged me a lot of money and sent me on my way, and I would have had the same issue. Or, like this great story I just told you, if I thought, I didn't even need a doctor, I'll just pass this on my own. Well, you know what I don't have is a laser beam. So there's actually no way I could have passed this stone on my own, unless one of you has a laser beam, which if you do, I'll come over next time, because it won't be my last, and this wasn't my last. Here's the moral of the story. There are just some stones that you cannot pass on your own, (laughs) and you need the perfect doctor to pass them. And to be honest, you know where this is going. One of those is sin, that's what Jesus is saying. He's like, listen, you can't pass this stone on your own. And I'm the only doctor around that can fix this problem. And this is why I came. Not for you that don't have a stone, but for those that do. And for whatever reason, this group of Levi's friends, this group of tax collectors and sinners, they had enough self-awareness and enough humility To realize that they had something wrong with them and they thought maybe this Jesus can help them. You see, that's what's interesting about this story. Why was Jesus in a room at a dinner with all these sinners and tax collectors? It's because they had chosen to come over to Levi's house to hear what this Jesus had to say. It wasn't a surprise attack. They knew that they were going to hear this man who had been going through all the towns talking about repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is near. They chose to be in that room. So they had enough self awareness and humility to go hear Jesus out. Unfortunately, these hyper religious scribes of the Pharisees never accepted the same invitation, they never had such a dinner with Jesus. And it's sad. And you have to ask yourself why is that? Why is it that this group of evil men who are the most visible of all sinners in the day, the most unclean, why are they the ones that had the foresight to come near to Jesus and hear his message of salvation? Or you could even ask it this way, was there some, or is there some advantage that the tax collectors and sinners had, and still have today, over the religious and morally upright? And the answer is, yes. They had no shame. And the reason that they had no shame is because they were already outcasts. You see, shame is a, moral, or is a social construct. Shame is the fear, we talked about this last week, of disconnection, of being outcast, both socially and relationally. Shame is about these horizontal relationships. It's an outward problem. Guilt, on the other hand, is a legal construct. It's the fear of punishment or judgment. It has to do with things like justice and forgiveness, and this is a vertical construct. This is an inward problem. And so if you've ever met somebody who, uh, turns out we have a lot of them here at Sederis who uh, you know, has been arrested for a crime and is been sitting in a jail room, you know, you know what they think less about? Shame. Although it exists because now people know that they've been arrested, they're primarily and first and foremost concerned with their guilt. Because even if they lose some relationships outside for being arrested, if they're found guilty and spend the rest of their life in jail, the shame doesn't matter. And here's what you have when you see these sinners and tax collectors. They have no shame because they've already become hated by the vast majority of their own people. So they've got nothing to lose, and they come and they hear Jesus out. Because they've moved beyond shame to this weightier consideration, which is one of guilt and punishment, which is what Jesus was speaking about again and again. That was his message. That was his gospel. That was his good news, that, that this, this unrighteousness, this legal issue, that's what righteousness is all about, the legal issue of guilt and punishment, that he had a solution for that. And this is how Jesus' solution works. Jesus was telling people that God had sent Him into the world to inaugurate this new perfect kingdom. Kingdom is all about hierarchy. It's a vertical issue. And this kingdom would come because Jesus Himself would take upon His person on the cross the sin of sinners. And He would reverse for all that followed Him by faith the guilt of and the punishment that results from being unrighteous. This is the ministry of reconciliation that's talked about over and over and over again in the New Testament. That Jesus stepped in and became sin who knew no sin so that we might experience that we might be seen as the righteousness of God. That He takes our place That He takes our guilt so that our vertical legal issue can be fixed so that we can go live a life free from shame. Reconnecting with all around us. That's the ministry of reconciliation. So let me ask you this. If, If this is what Jesus talked about, dealing with this guilt issue, if this is why He sat in rooms full of tax collectors and sinners, if you're utilizing the Jesus community only to deal with issues of shame, only to deal with outward problems of connection or isolation, though the church of God will provide fixes for that, you're missing out on the greatest part of being involved in a Jesus community, which is that a Jesus community gives you access to the truth and the application of the Gospel message so that you can deal with the inward problem of guilt, the legal righteousness issue. And that is really the key distinction that Jesus is continually making. He's saying religious communities, they're all about being good so that you are loved and accepted by others. But Jesus' communities are all about being forgiven so that you can love and accept others. You hear that? Jesus' communities are, being, are about being forgiven so that you can love and accept others. Because once you realize that Jesus Christ has taken upon Himself your sin and your unrighteousness, that this guilt, righteousness issue has been fixed by Jesus freely choosing to give up His life for yours. That He has died for your sin on the cross and resurrected to prove that it is finished. Then you see how easily, how easily you can look at anybody else in your life or in your world and see them no matter how different they might be, no matter how much they might differ morally, ideologically, habitually, no matter what issue you might think that they have, you can look at them and say, you too are worthy and able to receive love, belonging, and grace in Jesus. Because I too was a sinner and a tax collector and God saved me. You See how that works? And these scribes, they couldn't see it. It was beyond them. And Maybe it's been beyond you. Maybe you haven't understood that that's how it works. Who have you blackballed from the kingdom of God? Because you haven't understood how grace worked in your own life. It's scandalous. Who would you be surprised to find Jesus with at dinner? I just want you to take 10 seconds right now and just think about and pray for the courage to re-engage those people. That group that you have blackballed because you think they're far beyond the grace of God. Just take 10 seconds right now to pray for the courage to re-engage them. and I hope you can say this honestly with me, that if Jesus is willing to be shamed by the company that He kept, so will I. And that you could say, if Jesus is willing to be persecuted by the religious types for the friends He made, so will I. And in doing this, I hope, I pray, that you can now be Jesus to the world around you. But let me give you just a couple warnings here that are, I think are important that we can observe in the text. As you do this, as you enter into these relationships with the unclean, the tax collector, the sinner, notice this. Jesus himself never stumbled previously with the same sin that he then encountered. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, maybe you've struggled with alcoholism. Jesus never struggled with alcoholism. But maybe you you have in the past. So you have to be careful that you always hang out at bars, okay? Because Jesus didn't have that history of sin that you might have. So you have to be careful. Also, notice Jesus was not alone at the dinner, his disciples were with him. Let's, let's not go be MacGyver's. It's okay to bring others around you as you engage these communities. And then finally, just remember, Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He's been around for a while. He's been holy for a while. He's not a recent convert. So if you're a new Christian, it's just important to be extra thoughtful to surround yourself with both Christian and not yet Christian. That that even though probably you have more access to a non-Christian crowd, that you need to be careful and thoughtful about Uh, spending time with both communities so that uh, you're being built up as you learn what it means to follow Jesus. So as you do that, as you are thoughtful in the ways you engage, being willing to be seen and maybe even shamed by the company that you keep, just know that you will be the light of the gospel in people's lives. You'll bring it into places that it will not go unless you go there. Would you pray with me? Father God, we pray that you would soften our hearts to those in our society who have maybe been marked as the greatest of sinners. May we as a Jesus community be the most receptive to those who experience the most public shame. May you help us to be sensitive to our own sin, those ways that we have fallen short of your perfect righteous commands. May we become truly contrite and fall upon Your grace that You initiated with us through sending Your Son Jesus to live a life that we couldn't live and die a death that we should have died and then rise to a new life that we too can experience if we trust Him by faith. And God, if, if we're not quite ready for that, if we're not quite ready to answer this most important question of who was Jesus, and to accept the forgiveness and the grace that's accompanied with that answer, I just, I just pray, God, that, that, that we know that you are patient and that you give us a chance, like you did with Levi and his friends, to continue to pursue the truth of your message of grace. and That in your loving kindness, you wait and that you woo us in so that we might come freely and accept it.